0: It comes as a great shock, around the age of five or six or seven, to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance, along with everybody else, has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country which is your birthplace, and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. Let me put it this way, that from a very literal point of view, the harbors and the ports and the railroads of the country, the economy especially, Of the southern states could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had, and do not still have indeed, and for so long, so many generations, cheap labor. I am stating very seriously, this is not an overstatement, that I, And I carried the market, and I built the railroad under someone else's whip for nothing. For nothing. The Southern oligarchy, which has until today so much power in Washington, and therefore some power in the world, was created by my labor and my sweat the violation of my women and the murder of my children this in the land of the free and the home of the brave and no one can challenge that statement it is a matter of historical record
1: land of the free home of the brave these words reach ears with an aura of romanticism words that appeals to the highest aspirations within all the very ethos which entices millions to come and maximize their abilities in this great nation. A nation that accepts all, no matter the color, creed, or religion. In celebration of Black History Month, we share how African Americans were directly responsible for turning those words from theoretical promise into a tangible reality for all citizens of the United States. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us beyond borders. Today, we have Robertson Woodward Burns, He's the assistant professor of political science at Howard University. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Glad to be here. This is the last week in February, which is uh, Black History Month. And here at Immigration Nerds, we talk more technically on immigration policy, but also uh, we do uh, cultural insights and the tie between contributions of African Americans uh, here in this country and citizenship. They played a vital role and I think our audience uh, will definitely be able to take something away from it because a lot of them are either getting visas or looking for a green card or just interested about um, American culture and want to learn more uh, about living here and There was a point in time where freedom protection under the law was not afforded to all people. And it's over a hundred years of legislations and writing and rewriting to get to this point. African-Americans play a a huge role in this. So will we would like to start, I think it would be good to do like a little uh, uh, sort of timeline first in 1856, the Dred versus Scott case. Could you tell our listeners why is this important? What was the overall understanding of of this case?
2: Yeah, the Dred Scott case. The full name is Dred Scott versus Sanford. is this pivotal case in 1857. And it hinges on a few different questions, and one is the status of citizenship for black people in the United States. Now, to fully understand what's going on in this case, you have to backtrack a little bit and look at the previous 50 or 60 years of federal regulation of citizenship. So basically, in the Constitutional Convention in 1787, the framers agree not to establish widespread citizenship laws in the Constitution. They say that Congress can establish uniform rules of naturalization, but otherwise, they basically leave citizenship to the state governments, to their mm. constitutions and their legislatures. And so the states then engage in, say, expanding the franchise or contracting the franchise, formally granting citizenship or stripping it. In some cases, and particularly, we're really looking in New England states, you see an extension of citizenship to black citizens of those states, black people in those states. Mm. But it's fairly limited. Um What happens over the intervening years is the federal government basically stays out of the way of the states. So in 1821, Attorney General William Wirt says essentially that black people in the United States don't have uh, a right to the federal privileges and immunities clause path to citizenship so that that clause of the federal constitution doesn't give them a right to citizenship. Now, uh, later attorneys general basically stick to this line. Hugh Leguerre, in uh, 1843, a later attorney general, claims that blacks in the United States are not citizens, but black people are rather denizens. Uh, mm. So they're closer to a status of resident, but without that full set of citizenship. Right? Sure. And the Supreme Court largely stays out of it. There's a case called Strader v. Graham in 1850 in the Supreme Court in this Again, rejects the appeals of black people who are looking to be able to claim citizenship or freedom status. And so really through the first half of the 19th century, the Supreme Court's not getting involved. But ultimately that changes in Dred Scott versus Sanford. Um, so Dred Scott is a really complicated case. And I'll, I'll try to break it down as simply as I
1: can. Okay, sure. Yeah. Sure.
2: So there's a lot going on here. And it actually begins with a very simple case that uh, gets resolved in the state of Missouri. So Dred Scott originally, he's an enslaved person who belongs to Dr. Emerson, who's an army doctor, and Emerson travels. He uh, goes from Virginia and then settles in the free state of Illinois and then the free territory of Wisconsin, where he lives with Dred Scott. And Dred Scott is nominally an enslaved person, but basically is living as a free person. Mm -hmm. And then Scott travels with uh, Emerson to Missouri. And brings a freedom suit there. And what he says, uh, Scott says, is basically because I was living as a free person in Wisconsin, in this territory in Illinois, that I should basically be allowed to be free. And the Missouri courts had actually said this before. They said that, Mm -hmm. yes, that uh, it was fine uh, for people who had lived as free people to uh, finally be freed. But ultimately, in this case, Scott versus Emerson, where he's suing his owner, Dr. Emerson, the court actually in Missouri reverses it and says you're not free. Right. And so that would end things, but there's a twist in the case, basically. Uh, So what happens is that Emerson eventually dies and his widow, uh, Mrs. Emerson, inherits the ownership under this case as a result uh, of winning. She inherits ownership and she transfers it to her brother in New York. And now it's a federal case. It's not a Missouri case anymore. And so this brings us to Dred Scott versus Sanford. Her brother is Sanford and he sues. But what's also happening at this time is Southern states are starting to realize that they have less power in Congress. There are new states coming in in the West, and there are more anti-slavery seats. And so mm-hmm. these southern states are pressing hard, and they're pressing President James Buchanan for an anti- or for a pro-slavery decision in the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And James Buchanan comes to uh, Chief Justice Roger Brooke Taney on the Supreme Court and says, we need a strong pro-slavery case. And so while Scott's uh, case is working its way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is also getting ready to put down a hard uh, pro-slavery ruling. And so uh, ultimately, that's what Roger Brooke Taney is going to decide to do. Now, Taney, he's a pretty strong pro-slavery justice. Originally, occasionally, as a a young um, attorney, he aided some freedom suits for slaves. But essentially, after that, he went... Uh, pro-slavery pretty consistently in prior decisions
1: so when it got to the supreme court and it was ultimately uh turned down what was tani's opinion on that what was the basis that he
2: used right yeah so the facts of the case are pretty complicated and the decision is itself pretty complicated as a result so on the question of black citizenship he gives it on almost an absolute no so he says there are two paths to citizenship when one is birthright citizenship. Right. And birthright citizenship is merely the function of being born on uh, either the land of a country and gaining citizenship through that or gaining citizenship through having parents from that country. Those are the main paths to birthright citizenship. And so what tawny says is essentially that no that that path is not open to uh black citizens or black people in the united states they can't be citizens and he claims that uh essentially the framers of the original state constitution since they had jurisdiction over this never intended to grant citizenship to black people in the united states now historically this is not the case uh in fact uh, there were early state legis- uh, there were early state statutes and constitutions that granted uh, freedom uh, and to uh, as a result of that also citizenship to black people in their jurisdiction so Vermont, for example, in its seventeen seventy seven mm-hmm. constitution abolishes slavery at the very beginning of the Constitution and basically paves a path right. to citizenship, uh, citizenship. Now Tawney ignores that. Uh, There is, however, another path to citizenship, which is open, and that's naturalization. If you come into Mm -hmm. the United States, you can be a naturalized citizen by Congress. And Tawny does ostensibly leave this path open. But functionally, there are not many people who are going to take that. And so he's largely closing the door to black citizenship. And then he also goes even further in this decision in claiming that Congress has limited ability to uh, ban or regulate territorial slavery. And he does that by pointing to the Fifth Amendment. But the main crux of the case is that birthright citizenship decision. And he says because it's not entrenched in those original uh, clauses of the state constitutions. And here he's incorrect. But because he says that, he then goes on to say that black people in the United States don't have a path to birthright citizenship.
1: Got it. Well, how did that ultimately become overturned? African-Americans were in this sort of limbo state after emancipation, like no longer uh, slaves, but then also they're not full citizens. So they're in this sort of middle ground. So how did they get to a point of uh, overturning that sort of decision?
2: Yeah. Hmm. So there is a gradual move to reverse some of this and immediately afterwards, anti-slavery northern states reject red scott right off the bat and they Mm -hmm. say that it's not binding in part because the court probably couldn't have jurisdiction over this case if scott's not a citizen in the first first place if scott's not a citizen then tawny could have simply thrown out the case and it ought not to exist in the first place so it's an internal contradiction yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. so northern states never recognize it basically um But the Civil War happens, and that basically changes the political game. And result. I
1: think this this was one of the cases that, as a country, we were going into Civil War, but that was one of the cases that fueled it even more and made it even more pressing uh, in that split between uh, the anti-slavery North and you know, pro-slavery South. I'm assuming after the Civil War is when the 14th Amendment came into place?
2: Yes. yeah so um gradually as the war starts to wind down there's an attempt to restore citizenship uh, or even birthright citizenship to black people in the united states or in some cases to grant it for the first time in southern states and so Mm. what we see happening in 1864 is as the union starts claiming more and more southern states they call constitutional conventions and these in 1864 are the first conventions to functionally grant black citizenship throughout the South. And so you see an expansion gradually of legal rights and particularly voting rights for black citizens. Uh, And uh, increasingly, uh, by 1868, this project is largely completed through the southern states. They have a second wave of state constitutions. And Congress this whole time is watching and looking at these states' experiment with different clauses, clauses that grant the equal protection of the laws, for example... And so they see these different clauses being used at the state level, and they gradually start to propose these at the national level as well. Now, the 13th Amendment formally abolishes slavery, but the uh republicans in congress and particularly the radical republicans Mm -hmm. want to expand basically their power to uh enfranchise black men in the south who they expect Mm -hmm. to be regular voters and some of them also want to gradually expand civil rights more generally because they have a more egalitarian philosophy one predicated on equality and so all these amendments proposals are floating around in congress one for an equal protection clause which had been around and proposed since 1865-66 Uh, Another for birthright citizenship, which I'll talk about in a second, Uh, federal privileges and immunities clause, a due due process clause. And so these are all put together along with a few other clauses into what becomes the 14th Amendment. And it's a really long Mm -hmm. amendment as a result. But that birthright citizenship clause, that's really the most important part. And that forbids uh, essentially the United States or state government's it forbids them from denying birthright citizenship or naturalization uh, to people in their jurisdiction.
1: Right. That's the citizenship clause have here is like all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside. That was meant to override the 1857 Dred Scott versus Sanford case. And so this is one of the first pushes of being fully an American, no matter what your color, religion, gender is, you have that protection under the law. So the discussion is even continuing out till today, you know, that we may talk about a little bit later in terms of birthright citizenship. Right. So uh, but this is truly the, the origins of that. Moving forward, we, we have a birthright citizenship. So all those who were born on the land are uh, citizens of that land, and that is protected under the 14th Amendment. But moving forward, the greater American culture still wanted to have control over Black bodies. So this is when Jim Crow comes along. So this is after slavery, after they have that citizenship, in America, but still institutionally being held back. So for those who have uh, no idea what uh, Jim Crow is, like, could you give just a very short synopsis of what Jim Crow was and what it was in intentions?
2: Yeah. So the 14th Amendment obligates the states to grant citizenship but again the practice of citizenship the broader way we talk about it involving things like voting rights or civil rights that's still largely operated by the state governments
0: correct Mm -hmm.
2: so what happens eventually is uh, we see through the 1880s and 1890s western states get incorporated into the union Women get enfranchised. There's immigration, and as a result, the Republican Party, which really relied on the Southern black male vote through the 1880s, mm-hmm. now has this new constituency, which basically counterbalances that. And yeah. in some cases, the Southern
1: realignment, right? That's what yep. it's called. Yeah. yeah when, so, so the because uh, what we think of today as uh, Republican values, it was actually the Southern Democrats. Where that at that time, and it was, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you know, that was the more liberal side politically um, at that at that time. And that that shift largely happened because of uh, how voters felt about slavery and felt about black rights. Really, that's what yeah. it came down to.
2: Yeah. So you're yeah. pointing to it right there. Mm-hmm. Um the Republican Party can win national elections and basically continue without relying on that southern black male vote yeah. after 1890. So they make a last stand in 1890 with a a bill called the Force Bill which would have allowed Congress to intervene in unfair southern elections and that actually gets voted down there are enough Democrats in Congress to vote it down and Republicans mm-hmm. then gradually start slowly tiptoeing away from civil rights. And they, you know, have some commitment to it through the 1940s as a national policy plank and really into the 1950s. But this is the beginning of that slow shift that culminates by the 1960s where Democrats become the party of civil rights and reenfranchisement. And the Republican Mm -hmm. Party, with Barry Goldwater in 1864, actually opposes federal intervention on behalf of black voting rights. Mm -hmm. So we see that starting to happen. Uh, And as the GOP, basically as the old Republican Party in the 1890s, then begins moving out of uh, basically intervening in state governments and elections, Southern governments then establish what becomes eventually called Jim Crow. And mm-hmm. these are explicitly white supremacist governments. So Alabama right. in uh, 1901 writes a constitution where one of the framers says this is an instrument of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Virginia in 1902, same thing happens. Right. So they're establishing these basically constitutions that have broad disenfranchisement for black men. Right, so it's, it's
1: multiple legislations that mm-hmm. run by on, on a state level. The whole context is without addressing these sort of Jim Crow laws; these these laws of suppression. Um, if they weren't addressed, then then today, if you didn't fit a particular demographic, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and you wanted to live here in America, y- you too would be held by these same laws. So that's the
2: idea. So we might focus on a couple of things happening in southern state governments, and then a few broader things that are happening nationally.
1: Right. Correct because so, it happened both yeah, yeah exactly yeah. it wasn't
2: just in the south and right. it wasn't just the state governments so what southern governments do is they establish things like poll tests literacy tests uh sorry poll taxes literacy tests which effectively allowed local registrars to selectively disenfranchise black people in addition to this you get things like primaries which are not run by the state governments they're run by the local democratic party but because the democratic party was the only party in town functionally these primaries chose candidates and therefore the democratic party basically picked the candidate and so since it was this private organization it could have its own all-white primaries but be outside of the sphere of state governments and so you get this combination of state governments but also private organizations working together um and so that's sort of this political disenfranchisement that you see happening at the state level. But you also see the second thing, which is basically uh, segregation is emerging. And it had existed prior, prior to this. So Massachusetts, for example, in the 1850s had a segregated school system, mm-hmm. which the Massachusetts courts upheld in a case called Roberts for the City of Boston. But we see this getting rolled out, uh, or I should say upheld throughout the South uh plus versus ferguson the supreme court basically holds the separate but uh, equal doctrine is fine so it right. says that these governments are able to do that which um, it
1: was not uh, equal it was course. separate but it was definitely not equal in terms right. of like quality schools and and books and like teachers and just the whole sort of function it, it was separate but not equal in any sense
2: right yeah. mm-hmm. so the roberts first city of boston case in 1850 basically establishes this precedent that will uh, be very similar to Plessy. And essentially in Roberts, what they're saying is you can have this separate all black school system, but it's not equally funded. It's effectively a charity school that doesn't receive equal state funds. And so this actually goes way back before Plessy. And what Plessy is doing is basically upholding a return to this antebellum status quo in some ways. Um, So you see educational segregation, uh, segregation in places of public accommodation and the Supreme court narrows The grounds on which you can challenge this kind of segregation so people will bring equal protection clause claims and say that this is basically violating my right to equal protection of the laws and the supreme court will say that you can only bring these if there's action by the state basically enforcing it if it's state action. And so this means if you have a privately run, say, diner, for example, that this is going to be outside of the sphere of uh, state action. And the court will basically uphold this until the 1960s when it uses the Commerce Clause to roll that back. And so at the state level, you've got this disenfranchisement this social desegregation and then the federal government's also involved through these supreme court cases and then through much broader things like uh enforcing urban housing segregation in the north through things like red blinding contract selling and so on
1: right right yeah it was literally had a hold on every aspect of life yes. you know what were some of let's say the legislations that were Pursued in order to chip away. I know there was many different, but like sort of major cases that chipped away at Jim Crow era laws. Yeah. That, that brings us to what we have today.
2: Right. So mm-hmm. it's a long, long fight. Right. Uh, the NAACP. <laughs> we can hit the
1: right. the major yeah. ones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alright,
2: so I guess a few big ones then. Uh, one is uh, the Supreme Court basically says that urban housing discrimination Uh, That this is something that is uh, basically a violation of the 14th Amendment. Uh, So in a case called Shelley v. Kramer in 1948, it looks at these uh, housing covenants that basically allow neighborhoods to forbid people, and particularly in the north, also on the west coast, forbid people based on race or religion uh, from moving into certain neighborhoods and the Supreme Court throws that out. So that's obviously a watershed right. for the northern desegregation fight. Right. Brown versus Board, I'd be you know remiss if I didn't mention that because right. that overturns Plessy and it says separate is un- inherently unequal. Yeah. And then Congress comes with Elementary and Secondary Education Act and says that schools either need to enforce this or if they don't, they'll lose their funding. And so yeah. that really gives the punch that Brown needs. Uh, and so gradually, as a result of the ESEA, you see Southern schools desegregating. And this leads to backlash, their fights about busing, how to do it. But functionally, that old original Jim Crow regime uh, gets a death blow from cases like Shelley, from Brown, from uh, other desegregation cases in the 1960s.
1: Right. Um, And the Civil Rights Act of 1964, is it? And that was the big watershed moment. Um, And we I, we, we did uh, literally a, a hundred years worth of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> history <laughs> in a half an hour. That was a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think this is very important to people specifically who are interested in living, working in America. It's given the idea of the the land of the free and the land of opportunity. Right. And that's what draws people to this nation. Right. Uh, But it's very inception. The political and the legal landscape was specifically for white men who owns land. (laughs) Really. Right. It was a very specific, narrow (laughs) demographic. Yeah. Right. So um, it took these, you know, 100, 150 years and continuing changing and re-updating the laws to get to a point where people now can say, hey, I want to live in this place and I know that I have every opportunity that anyone else has in theory, you know, right? Uh, (laughs) That's a whole nother podcast. Um, But uh, this history right here shows uh, a, a basic timeline of getting to this point uh today right. so robertson i, I want to thank you uh for for your time this has definitely been uh, illuminating uh for me and i i appreciate it
2: absolutely it was a pleasure
1: i'm glad i have you here because this is like a personal sort of question for me one You're very unique because of your background and also, you know, truly like the the history of, uh, of America. And my question has always been, this is the 2019 sort of question, is trying to explain to broader Americas, mainstream America, white America, the effects of institutional racism. And, and I think whenever you have that conversation, it's always a, a knee-jerk reaction. They yeah. feel uh, uh, d- defensive, and it's just like, no, listen, I'm not saying you the person, right? But there's a system, there's a structure that was created well before me and you, yeah. and we are operate within this structure is kind of like under the like we're living in the foundation of this house and Mm -hmm. like the foundation itself is is racist
2: the constitution um so i mean i work on constitutional law and the constitution i I tend to think is a pro-slavery instrument and that's a really hard point to make Mm -hmm. people believe in because we're told to respect the constitution and so, like, Dred Scott, for example, says the Fifth Amendment was framed for slaveholders, right? The decision says that. And there are framers of the Fifth Amendment who probably wanted that, where it says property rights to mean property and slaves. So, it does go all the way to, like, the depths of it. But it's hard to make people think the Constitution could be an instrument of evil, right? Now, I have, my students generally are more receptive to this, but I've taught other places mm-hmm. that they don't always buy it. It's hard. I don't I don't know how to do it, so.
1: Right, because we, we have this, we want this we want to romanticize and mm-hmm. say hey our forefathers these guys were just benevolent mm-hmm. angels these these figures beyond right. humans right and and just just as flawed yeah. as right. any one of us right, right? and humans have self interest yep. so there's people who are writing <laughs> the mm-hmm. documents the laws they're going to write it in a way that best suits them
2: and they did yeah. <laughs> that that's <Yeah>. just
1: <laughs> just I human mean, nature
2: it's, right like but this is the hardest thing to do is make people think about structural injustice right and so I'm, like when obama said you didn't build that that was like this huge i don't know if you remember but like a lot of yeah, people had a yeah, yes. huge mm-hmm, backlash mm-hmm. to this uh, because you know People have this personal attachment. They think that if, you know, and this particularly white people, if you call out structural injustices and make people realize the kinds of benefits they have, then people have this knee jerk, like, I worked hard for this. Um, Another good Mm -hmm. example. So my girlfriend used to work at a newspaper at her undergrad and someone just published basically a story in that newspaper being like, we need to balance classrooms so that white men talk less. But like there was (laughs) huge blowback to this article because people took it like personally and like don't realize that structural things make it so that people like that talk all the time. So it's <laughs> it's, it's <hard>.
1: yeah. <laughs> I so I'm more on the side of who is knowledgeable. I don't I don't care, you know, yeah. who you are but who has the right sort of content yeah. and information,
2: right? And that yeah. should
1: be that should come up to the forefront and
2: right. often the ones that do have that knowledge get talked over. Right? Like, and mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't have to do this at Howard because I don't have that problem here. But at other places, I've seen again, you just have kids, and it's usually straight white men, and so on that just talk over everyone else. And so, when you like call them out, though, you get this it's, people don't like hearing that, so it's a hard thing to, to yeah. say.
1: Oh man, I've man, now I want to just sit in one of your, your classes and because <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply so I was a political science okay. uh major. Uh, I went to University of Chicago Mm -hmm. and I understand from let's say the black perspective I would go and it would be like me and maybe one other Mm -hmm. person and whenever there was a project or something like that nobody would look towards me as like hey to lead the group or bring together it was almost a a unspoken nod to another person who was Caucasian and it was just like, okay, yeah, you're the one who's supposed to lead the group. I'm sure other colleagues have probably told you, it's just like when you raise your hand and you speak, you feel like you're speaking for all black people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because everybody's like, oh, what is he going to say? Is this going to be right? And there's it a, a certain uh, anxiousness. It's not, It's not very real. I can honestly say it's not really real now for me because like once you have your better sense of self and like the confidence self-esteem then you know you just talk about what you know but that's a real thing yeah
2: yeah, yeah. i mean PWRs definitely do that and like i haven't experienced it but i've seen classrooms that function that way and taught in those classrooms um yeah i, I just don't have solutions for that and like the flip side yeah. is i can't call people out you know again i'm trying to like keep a balanced classroom but i also can't call out people who represent their group so there's not really a great way to get across these things in PWIs, except for to teach the like deep structural stuff which it sort of works
1: so. right yeah, yeah yeah but still trying to treat everybody as an individual right and right. not try to lump them in as like hey you're a part of this group mm-hmm. and this is why you, you can represent that group
2: today right which, which some teachers do Mm. this is a whole other thing so, <laughs> yeah. yeah in some ways it's actually easier to teach at Howard or if I was at a Hispanic serving institution or any institution where you don't uh, basically have um, again just like one group that dominates the conversation it's just like you get more of a balance I found so far so
1: mm-hmm. oh so. how long have you been
2: uh-huh. this is the second year oh so, okay yeah, yeah. Nice. it's good I actually grew up here in DC so it's weird I like, came back to
1: For more immigration updates, make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG Nerds Podcast and join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next time.